Open your scriptures this morning to First uh, Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking today at verses 18 to 22. Uh, a, a section of this particular chapter, the end section really of the third chapter, that we began to look at the last time. And there just wasn't enough time really to work our way through all of that. Not that I expected we would, but uh, we're going to be picking up a study that we've already begun at this portion of the third chapter. So, picking up our reading today in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray together as we get into God's word this day. Heavenly Father, once again we thank you for your mercy and grace in making your word available to us. That you chose to speak from eternity. And we ask now, through the working of your Spirit, that you would take these God-breathed words and penetrate our hearts with them, that we would understand what it means that you've said and recognize its application within our lives and find that enabling from your Spirit to move forward in obedience. Give us alertness of mind, Lord, and give us teachability before you. Well, thank you for that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Much of the third chapter uh, has been given over to the fact that we're called upon to be not only living as aliens in this world, sojourners, uh, a light in the darkness as exiles in a foreign land, but that we are to be speaking, not just living a certain way, that we're called to be ambassadors, not only sojourners. And the two have to blend together in our lives. Now to speak without living in a way pleasing to God simply undercuts what we try to say. But to try to live without speaking leads a confusing message in the minds of the people around us. Because there's other people in this world who are trying to live, at least as best they understand it, some sort of moral and upright life. And uh, we need to add words to whatever light there is so they understand what it is that drives us. And what it is that makes a difference for us, more importantly, what can make the difference for them. So to be ambassadors and Sojourners. Therein is the balance. Verses 18 to 22 provide for us in the closure of that a summary of five core facts about the gospel. What is it that we're to be saying? What is this ambassador all about, this task? What, what message are we delivering from the King of Kings to the, you know, to the world in which we find ourselves? Last time we looked at the first three of the five. The first of the core facts is that has been repeated throughout the book thus far, uh, we are all sinners and separated from God. That's why Christ came. Uh, There's no gospel message without communicating that clear message from the Scriptures. It's our personal sin, of which all of us are guilty, that have separated us from the Heavenly Father. 
Not just that all of us have sinned, as all have, but that the sin matters. Sin, by its very nature, creates a separation with a holy and righteous and just God. That's just the nature of how God's very nature is all about. It's the consequence of that nature. It isn't a matter of God in love saying, well, I'd, I'd kind of like you to be with me anyway. He can't stop being holy and just and loving any more than he can stop being loving. <laughs> all have to be reconciled and, and satisfied in relationship with him. And therefore, all people as sinners are separated from God And, consequently, all people face an inescapable accountability and judgment before God, at which time not only that they're a sinner would be clear, but also that there's an impossible accountability tied to that. (laughs) If you are a sinner, you can't be in the presence of the Lord and dwell there permanently. The second core fact building on that is that the Lord Jesus Christ died for those sins. That's what the reality of the cross is all about. What God did in that hopeless condition that all mankind finds themselves in was sent his son to die for us on the cross. Taking the penalty upon himself is that, that sacrifice of infinite worth, the word made flesh to dwell among us. Taking that penalty upon himself, the penalty you and I deserved for our sin and rebellion against God. Christ's death is central to the gospel. In fact, the work of Christ, the shedding of his blood on the cross, is what distinguishes Christianity. If that's not part of the message of a church, it's not a Christian church, whatever label it may have. You have to be understanding the center of the work of Christ on the cross, the absolute necessity of it, and the absolute necessity of people responding to it in faith to uh, understand what Christianity is. And that leads, inevitably, to the third of the core facts that we ended with last time, which is that this one who died for us, the very word made flesh and dwelt among us, rose from the dead. The effect of that is that not only did he physically die on the cross, but he was resurrected on that Easter morning. In that resurrection, we saw the confirmation from the Father that this impossible dilemma of sin And a God who is holy, just, loving, (laughs) and pure. Somehow the reconciliation could happen. And it was only because of that infinite value of the sacrifice that was made. And in that resurrection, everything was confirmed. We talked briefly about 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where the resurrection is of first importance because it's not only a, a Savior who died, but a Savior who rose. By the way, that's the reason I like uh, a symbol of an empty cross. <laughs> because while it's not that I don't see the shedding of the blood on the cross as critical to the salvation of humanity, the thing that showed it was satisfying what God did was an empty cross and an empty tomb. And we serve a risen Savior. There's no gospel without the resurrection. And there's no gospel without the word made flesh and dwelt among us and going to the cross and shedding his blood for us. And there's no gospel that leaves anybody short of understanding that they are sinners and impossibly separated from God as a consequence of that. So when it comes to being an ambassador, what message am I trying to share? Well, in wisdom, I'm trying to share those ideas from God's word with people so that they see the truth about the realities of life. Well, 
There's some other core factors here in these verses 18 to 22 that we also want to look at today. The fourth of these factors, core facts of the gospel, is that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended back into heaven. As we see in verses 21 to 22, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, now is a removal of dirt from the body, does an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. This Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world, the Word made flesh and dwelt among us, who died and then rose again, this one went back to heaven following that resurrection. That was the message in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Jesus speaking in this final period of time with his disciples. is. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you saw him go up to heaven. This one has ascended into heaven. Christ resurrected, now physically, with the Heavenly Father. That's the principle. That's the point. Now, why is that important? Why is that supposed to be part of the message that the ambassador shares with the world in which we find ourselves? Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Let me give you just a couple, but then I'll talk about what I think is the most important of the reasons practically for us as believers. But one of the reasons is it marked the end of his earthly ministry until such time as he returns again. I mean, that, that part of the ministry is finished. And he has more in the ministry of God's great plan, but it's tied to the second coming, not tied any longer to that first coming and the events that led to salvation for those who would believe in that time. Uh, the Father had sent him, word made flesh and dwelt among us, into the world, revealed at Bethlehem. Now he was returning to the Father. The second piece of that that we need to understand is that that also marked the time where the period of his human limitations, which were voluntarily assumed by the Lord Jesus Christ, was passed. Those limitations uh, were now a thing of space and time in God's great plan of history. He's not limited any longer in the way that he purposely and willingly was limited while he was here, word made flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, it marked the return to his heavenly glory. Uh, during this period of time where Jesus was on the earth, the word made flesh to dwell among us, his, uh, his glory was veiled in a way. The one time you see it sort of unveiled is on the Mount of Transfiguration when the apostles had a chance to see what he's really like <laughs> and, uh, and you know, overcome and gl- glowing and white. And we see the glory of the Lord there. But for that period of the earthly ministry leading to the cross, leading to the tomb, leading to the resurrection, that glory was covered and veiled to our eyes. We couldn't see all that was true of the Lord Jesus Christ. He returned to his heavenly glory, the glory that he had with the Father. And as John 14.2 says, hey, listen, I've, I've gone to prepare a place for you. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of things going on in this ascension, but for our purposes in terms of ministry to other people, I think, uh, the 
central issue going on in the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he's now in that era, that period of his unfolding role of being our high priest. He is now, as the book of Hebrews explains to us, uh, the one who is our high priest, our defender, our advocate, our intercessor with the Father. Uh, that's what he's carrying out on our behalf. Uh, notice in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast to our confession. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet was without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. Because we understand this about that one who is our high priest. Later in the 7th chapter of Hebrews, in verse 25, it says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Uh, isn't that a wonderful, amazing truth? In 1 John chapter 2, it says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, what's all this about? What is he doing in this role interceding for us? Well, I'll tell you what he's not doing. He's not before the Father trying to find an excuse for us. He's not saying, well, listen, you know, Gary had a tough day. <laughs> he wouldn't have done that if he wasn't. No, no, it's not, there's none of that going on. What's going on? is, yeah, though redeemed, Gary blew it. He, he sinned in attitude or action. I am the propitiation for his sin. He repented and believed in me. My blood covers that. I'm glad I've got a defender before the Father. How about you? Because God's promise to me is that when I repent and believe in the gospel, that is now my permanent condition, covered. And when the accuser, which is the enemy of our soul, Satan, tries to accuse me, and he does, and you as well, uh, there's a constant answer coming back. Not, well, he meant better. It's that he probably meant worse than he did. But <laughs> it's covered in my blood. I am the propitiation for his sin. He is mine. My righteousness covers him. My shed blood paid for this wrong. He's acting as our high priest. Constantly covering us. It's amazing truth, really. <laughs> and it's part of the gospel that we share. By the way... Why is it part of the gospel we share? Because if we don't share that, then what people are left with is, if they start to understand the nature of sin and how it separates us from a holy God, and unless something's done to deal with that sin, uh, we're helpless and separated from God, their natural, logical conclusion would be, okay, well, you've had, Jesus did this. What happens if you stumble and sin after having received him? Sin's still a reality in your life. Must be it separates you from God. Must be you have to be saved all over again. That would be the logical conclusion. And most people draw that conclusion in the world around us. So part of the gospel is to talk about 
what justification really means and how it in practice works out because we have one who is our advocate with the Father forever and ever. And his shed blood always covers us. Not because we deserve it, but because it's part of what salvation brings us. Otherwise, I would have a message that lacked security for one who would believe in it. And brothers and sisters, as an ambassador of the king, I'm not into sharing messages that don't have security tied to them. I want people to rest in what God has said and what God promises them. Now, by the way, it may not be part of the message I share with other people, but for the believer, I'll share with them as, as John, under the direction of the Spirit, said, I'm writing these things to you so you don't sin. This is, this is not to make you think, well, sin's unimportant. If you're sinning and not dealing with it right, Hebrews 12 tells us we have a Heavenly Father who takes His role seriously. He'll discipline us so that we learn by that. I mean, it's not like God ignores it and there's a consequence from sin. But praise God for the redeemed believer, that consequence isn't. Now, once again, we have to stand before the great throne judgment. <laughs> no, we are covered in the blood consequence of hope for the believer. He is the propitiation for our sins. Remember John 1? I write these things to you, may not sin, but, but if we do, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate with the Father. I'm glad my advocate with the Father is not trying to come up with a legal case, trying to show extenuating circumstances why, why God ought to give me another break, you know. It's the case he comes up with reveals things I don't even know about myself, but all of which would be condemnatory in reality. And he says, but he's covered. But he's covered. I don't understand all of that in the sense of why, but I certainly understand that's what he's saying. And that comes down to a lot of our understanding of the word. Uh, I don't always understand why God does some of the things he does, but I understand that he does it. Because he says it. I mean, why would he send his son to die for us in the first place? None of us deserve it, you know. But nonetheless, that's what he reveals. That's what he did. By the way, as important as this intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf in this era, as we stand before the Lord, even more important in my thinking is the fact that, is that Acts 1 passage, he went up, he's coming again. Uh, he went up. He's going to come in the same way. Let's remind ourselves of that. Remember every time we share in the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians? Uh, remind ourselves of this until he comes, because he's coming again. Uh, he's actually going to return. He's actually going to return. Well, is Christ's intercession and return part of the message as an ambassador that you seek to share frame and give, have wisdom from the Holy Spirit as to how to frame it and talk to people about it using the scriptures. But is that part of what you're sharing? Because that's the message that transforms. The, message, the world around us, to them it makes perfect sense when Christians have corrupted that message into something of penance. Something having to do with self-atoning religious abasement stuff. I mean, that makes perfect sense to them because that's how the world thinks. They don't need me to do that. They already think that way. What I need to share with them is to say, no, that's not how it works anymore. 
here's something that we couldn't have come up with except God revealed it because it doesn't occur to us naturally. Here's what God's revealed about our sin, about his Savior, about his death, about his, his resurrection, about his ascension, about his return. Do you see it? How are you doing on that part of the message? The fourth, or I'm sorry, the fifth, the final piece of these summary points of the message of the ambassador is that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord right now. Notice how he puts it. He's, he's right now at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. The gospel tells me that I serve a risen Savior. It tells me I serve an ascended Savior. It tells me I will serve a Savior who will return. But it also tells me that that Savior who has risen and ascended isn't waiting until he returns to be Lord. He's Lord right now. God's plan hasn't all unfolded yet. We don't see all of the expressions of that Lordship. But he is Lord nonetheless. Now. Right now. All angels. All authority. All power in the structure of the Greek here is currently subjected to him. Currently. Now. He's at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. The place of power and authority. Right now. Not a message that wasn't lost, by the way, on the Jews. As Stephen, in that period leading up to his martyrdom in Acts, said, he saw his vision and says, oh, I see him, he's at the right hand of the, of the Father. And that was where they really started gnashing their teeth and screaming and throwing stones. They understood what that meant. <laughs> You're telling me that this one that we rejected and crucified is actually the Lord at the highest position of authority in the universe? Ah! And killed him as a result of that. So what Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11 helps us to understand. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, even being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The fifth piece of this, he's Lord. That's, that's the truth about it. He is Lord now. Now, the truth of the matter is, when he returns, which we've already seen as part of that message, his lordship will become much more visible to people. The reality of the fact he is lord will have much more substantiated evidence at that point on the human level. We'll see what that means and how that works itself out. But the fact of the matter is, the scripture says, he's lord right now, even though there's an unfolding plan of God where the visibility of that lordship will vary over time according to God's purpose and plan. But it doesn't change the fact this is his status at the moment. He is lord now. And today is the day to accept that he's lord now. Today. 
You know, the fact of the matter is, one day, all, as Philippians 2 was telling us, that one day, everybody's going to have to acknowledge it. But what other passages of scriptures tell us, that for many of them, they'll acknowledge it too late. Nobody will end up missing the fact he is who he claimed to be. Nobody will end up going into eternity confused about it. It'll be evident to everybody. But it will be too late for most, in my opinion. By the way, he draws our attention back here, and we'll come back to it in a couple of minutes, to this issue of the timing of the flood and Noah and so forth. But I want you to think about that era in biblical history, in that period of time, in the building of the ark leading up to the flood. The principle of being, uh, of time running out, but still awareness continuing, was revealed there. Noah was presented as a preacher of righteousness in the scriptures, as a witness during all of the years that he was building that ark, right up until the time that God shut them in. I think because he was a preacher of righteousness, God had to shut them in, because he'd have kept right on the right on the steps trying to proclaim to people even as raindrops were coming down, because his heart would have not wanted people to perish. But uh, he God didn't let him have that option. There was no preaching. From the door frame, all right, that took place. Everybody who was rejecting the message that God was giving of inescapable accountability, before they died, all came to understand, ah, that message was true. Rain's coming down. Not only coming down, it's not stopping. And not only that, there's other cataclysmic things happening, and the level of water is going up. I guess this was true after all. Glub, glub, glub. I'm not trying to be flippant about that. In the same way, every person who has ever been born or ever will be born will know with absolute certainty Jesus is Lord. They will know with absolute certainty they are accountable for sin before a holy God who is there. They will know with absolute certainty they are hopelessly cut off from that God because they refused the provision God made. Just like the people staring at the ark now with the door closed saw it starting to float and then sink. They saw the truth of it. In a way, had to proclaim it. It was true. Too late. Too late. That's the note of urgency, by the way, in the gospel, is we as ambassador sojourners are in this world. We never know when it is too late for somebody. I've had people die totally unexpectedly in my circle. I never know when time's up, you know. Today's the day. You've got to act on this truth today. I have to communicate that sense of urgency about it, or I'm not really communicating that message. I mean, I can't force them to respond, but like a Noah, I can plead with them, come in the ark, the rain hasn't started, <laughs> there's still time, but I don't know when the rain's going to start. It may not start till tomorrow or next year. It may start five seconds after I get done talking to you. If it starts five seconds after I'm done talking to you, it's too late for you to respond to it. That is the urgency of the gospel message that God wants us to share with people. 
I don't say that to be manipulative. I mean to be honest. That's what it's about. Nobody's ever become a believer because they were manipulated into it. Uh, that's not what witness is all about. Some try to make it that, but that's not what it's about. It's communicating the truth. But making sure I'm communicating all of the truth. Because it doesn't have the power unless all of the truth is there. So I want to share the whole picture. You know, this is what it's all about. Uh, as he puts it in Philippians, every knee will end up bowing before the Lord. They won't have any choice in it. But that bowing of the knee is not the same thing as bowing the knee today. Because bowing the knee today and believing, repenting and believing today changes everything for eternity. To bow the knee then changes nothing. Except in your own thinking, it's like what a fool I have been. That's all that happens. So determined to bow today. <laughs> the gospel that I share always has and should have this combination of believe and bow tied to it. <laughs> because it's all more than intellectual information. Brothers and sisters, understand nobody was ever saved because of intellectual affirmation of the gospel. The demons believe and tremble. That's, I mean, you have to have intellectual affirmation of it. That's got to be there. You have to believe it. You have to understand it. But you can understand it and never act on it. You can understand and even believe the message that, well, God's going to judge the earth and never go in the ark. You know what I mean? You could, you could stay outside. You, gotta, you combine it with an action. The Bible says that action is repenting and believing. You know, you, you build on it by saying, okay, I'll act on it. By the way, there's a reason that God gave us an entire chapter in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, explaining what he means by faith. Now why? Because he's helping us to understand it's more than just intellectual. There's that dimension to it. But all of the examples in Hebrews 11 are people who, because they came to believe something was true in their minds, acted in a way in response to it. From the time of Abel onward. And that's the nature of the gospel. That's why we share it. That's why we challenge people. Repent and believe on these things. That's what God wants for you. Uh, well, more could be said on that, but I'll stop with those, with those points. Those are the five... Uh, you know, core factors of the gospel. And if I want to be an ambassador in a fallen world and make sure that I'm both living and speaking in a way that can make a difference, I better make sure in some way I got all that together. And then I'm sharing with people. If all I'm telling people is, well, you just need to trust Jesus, but I never tell them what that means. I haven't said anything, brothers and sisters. And neither have you. Neither have you. People need more than generality. They need biblical specific. Because it is the biblical specific that's sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces to the very division of soul and body. Generality never does that. Generalities may get people to be apprehensive, may get them to feel unnecessarily complacent, but it's truth cutting-edge truth empowered by the Spirit of God that penetrates people. And if you're going to spend some time doing something, why would you want to share anything less than that? I mean, 
How many times do you get to talk to people anyway? You know, finally have a chance, and I get a chance to talk to somebody, and I'm going to go away from that time thinking, well, you know, I didn't, didn't, really, didn't really share any specifics. How can, I, how can I deal with God on that basis? God's going to call me into account for that, not my salvation. He's going to say, hey, I opened the doors. I worked it out. You're, you're having this chance to interact with this person. You know, people have been praying for that person. Maybe you've been praying for him. You know, why didn't you say what needed to be said? Why? And far too many cases in my life. It's like, got no excuse, Lord. <laughs> got no excuse. Especially it will be grievous if I discover that maybe I'm one of the last ones who would have had a chance to speak specifically to that person. Well, in these verses that I read to you at the end of the third chapter, which are these five you know, core summary issues of the gospel, and those are the main issues here, uh, we encounter in the midst of those verses a couple of phrases that have become... Very confusing for people. And uh, being, a, you know, being a, a, a Bible teacher and also a scholar of sorts, I've read over the years very much about the things that confuse people and uh, read much of the theological discussions surrounding those things. And we encounter two phrases here. One, the phrase, preached through the spirits in prison. And the other is the phrase, saved by baptism, that have been the recipient of untold foolishness when people seek to make sense out of it. And so I decided in the little bit of time that remained after we got the big points out, I'll share with you briefly about those phrases. Uh, so what does this phrase preach to the spirits in prison? He went and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, etc., before I give you some thought on that, let me, let me give you a much more important thing than whatever my thoughts may be on it, all right? And it is this. Whenever we encounter unclear phrases, confusing phrases, they will never be cleared up because you sit down and try to logically work it through. They will never be cleared up because somebody else has some extra biblical revelation where an angel talked to them and said, well, this is what this means. Or if not an angel, some of them have the presumption enough, and there's certainly those books out in third wave Pentecostalism, to say, God spoke to me and helped me to understand what happened during that time. What a bunch of bunk. You might as well call yourself Joseph Smith. But people still believe that stuff. Uh, at any rate, you're never going to find it there. Well, what does that leave us? Where we need to be left? Here. Deuteronomy 29, 29 puts it, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of this law. Uh, this is the revealed stuff, brothers and sisters. <laughs> Here. You're not going to find it anyplace else. Here. This is the revealed stuff. 1 Corinthians 4, 6 says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what's written. 
that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Because if you go beyond what's written, the inevitable outcome of that is distortion and pride. There's no escape from that. So if you begin to look to other places, your own brilliance, some revelation, pride and confusion and distortion is the only outcome. This, the written, is what we're limited to. Don't go beyond that. Romans 4.3 says, in answering this question, well, what about Abraham and, and circumcision and justification? How did all this work out? In verse 4, uh, verse 3 of chapter 4, Romans, it says, well, what does the Scripture say? <laughs> and what a practical thing. It's like, well, let's, we could spend forever debating this thing. Let's see, what's, what's the Scripture say? And once we find what the Scripture says, shut up! And you say, well, but I didn't see enough there to give an answer. Well, then God didn't want you to give one. Far better to go to somebody and say, well, I'm not quite sure what that phrase means, but I can tell you what it doesn't mean. (laughs) Uh, Because never is obstruction to clearly taught biblical truth going to be found in unclear, confusing passages. People, I've, I've seen this inevitably. People will take something that's a bit confusing, and they'll, and they'll say, well, I think this is what it means, and therefore I, this verse back here, this verse back here, this passage back here can't mean what you think it means. But sisters, that's foolishness. That's not how we work this out. We work from the clear to the unclear. And if nothing else, when it comes to an unclear statement, we can say, well, I know it doesn't mean anything in conflict with this, I, I don't understand all that it means. Gosh, as you're told in First Corinthians, I, I, now I just know in part. I'll know fully then. I don't know everything right now. I'm dependent on what God said. If he didn't say more about it, it was just to say, you know, you couldn't understand it all anyway. And just understand there's more to learn yet. But I gave you enough to protect you against misapplication of things that are just revealed truth without all the clarification that you would like. All right, so what is this about? What's, that's, that's the most important thing. I wanted to say that to you in case we had never got a chance to say anything about those phrases. <laughs> but we'll come to the phrases now. What does that mean, preach to the spirits in prison? Well, we know from the Scriptures, in an objective, I believe, manner, as we approach the Scriptures, taking them for meaning what they mean, that... Uh, Prior to the cross, remember this was the unfolding answer to the solution of sin, the ultimate solution. Sacrifice was there and forgiveness could be possible, but no true covering of justification was possible until the precious Lamb of God was ultimately sacrificed. Most theologians say, well then that means in the period of time preceding the cross, in the shedding of that blood, uh, something must, uh, must be true of the person who is a person of faith until such time as the fullness of time came and and that ultimate promised sacrifice was made. And most often they'll turn to Luke chapter 16 where Jesus is talking about the, the rich man and Lazarus, you remember, and talking about the distinction between after the death of both of them, uh, the rich man went to Hades, the... the uh, the Lazarus, the poor, went to paradise. And you remember those examples. By the way, 
There's nothing parabolic about that story in, in Luke chapter 16. No grammatical reason to see it as parabolic language. So I look at that and I say, well, then it's not a parable. He's giving us some insight that we need. Uh, no one could really dwell in the presence of God until full atonement for sin was made. And you say, well, how was that? Wasn't the sacrifices prior to that time useful? Yeah, and I can tell you Isaiah, the great faithful prophet, was covered by the temporary sacrifices, trusting God's ultimate sacrifice. But when he had his vision of coming into the presence of God in Isaiah chapter 6, it says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. I'm lost. Well, what was done was a temporary covering. No one could dwell until that full atonement was made. And so it's reasonable to assume as the cross finally occurred and it was finished, meaning the atonement had been made, that there was a period of time where the Lord Jesus, prior to the resurrection, went to where the other people who had died went. Part of it broken into two pieces. Hades and paradise. Why he told, I believe, in Luke 23, to the, to the one uh, criminal, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's the reason he didn't use the word heaven there, uh, in my opinion. But at any rate, he said you'll be with me there. So what did he do there? Tells us here he was there, he went there, and he proclaimed. I think he proclaimed victory to the ones who weren't trusting God all along the way, that were in the place where the rich man was. Uh, they had not believed God's promise, and they had not turned to it. I believe that's what was being proclaimed there. And for the ones who were waiting in the bosom of Abraham and the place of paradise, he was saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm that fulfillment of the sacrifice first seen in, in the garden. It's my precious blood that's been shed for you. And after that clarity, paradise ceased. And the redeemed went with him to heaven. Now, Hades continues on. Why? Because the conclusion to that doesn't come until the great white throne judgment. It's a, it's a place of torment, obvious conscious separation from God, because that's what the rich man saw. But it's... It's awaiting. Think of how it puts it in Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 to 15. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hades stops at that point. And eternal separation from the floor takes on a different frame. And that is the lake of fire. Now, one says, yeah, I still have some questions about all of that. I said, well, join the club. I mean, there's, but where are you going to turn for answers to it? You're not going to find it in any Benny Hinn book or Copeland book giving you elaborate esoteric ideas about what Jesus had to do in this interim between the cross and the resurrection. What a bunch of garbage. Call it what it is. No, better just come before the Lord and say, well, I think the answer rests in this area, Lord. <laughs> but if you're pushing me on certain points, you have to tell me more than what you told me. I never have any problem 
stopping short, saying, well, I don't know. God didn't say enough about it to totally answer this question. That's what I do in the university. People ask questions about issues about other things. And they don't know enough information about it. They say, well, I can tell you this is kind of what's going on here. But, you know, what does this really translate into? I, I, we're not quite sure. We don't know enough yet to know that. Why do I have a problem? Why would, why would one have a problem doing that in that context? And think it's not... A, why would they have a problem in the context of the scriptures? Where we don't, right now we have knowledge in part that God wanted to give us, but not, not complete. I mean, so what? You know, I can't answer some things. Yeah. Somebody says, well, what about this? Well, I don't know exactly. But I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. I can tell you what it doesn't mean enough to tell you about the garbage that some people have said about this. But, uh, well, at any rate, there it is. Uh, how are we doing on time? Well, we're basically out of time. Well, you're stuck. We're not going to talk about you know, saved by baptism here. Uh, <laughs> another phrase. But let me just say, in relationship to that, the same principle holds true. You have no place to turn except the revealed scriptures about it. And you would always look at what seems to be a confusing phrase or uh, a misleading phrase. And you would never discount what's clearly said other places because you think that be, might be what it means. All right? Uh, nobody is saved by baptism if by that we mean some sort of religious ceremony, uh, some sort of sacramental rite. Uh, the scripture already says, no, that's, that's not the case. Uh, think of Romans chapter 2 and into Romans chapter 3. No religious rites never made anybody right, uh, but they can symbolize something else. Uh, people say, well, let me end with this. People say, you can come on up, Gretchen. Uh, people will often ask me, well, if, it, if, it, if that isn't what it means... If it doesn't save us, then why should we be baptized anyway? You know, you know what the right response to that? It's the same response I give to the Lord's Supper to people. God has his own reasons for asking me to carry out ordinances that don't save me, but have some sort of teaching function for me. God has his own reasons. I don't know what they are completely, but I do know this. I am not presumptuous and prideful enough to believe I know better than God. And therefore I don't do something that he made it pretty plain he wanted me to do just because I can't understand all of the reasons that he wanted me to do it. And I hope you have the same attitude. Better to say, well, I, I, bow, in, I bow in limitation, Lord. <laughs> but what's pretty clear here is you command us when we gather with the brothers and sisters, well, let's break the bread. And you command that you want the people in, in a statement and effort to demonstrate in baptism the picture of what the gospel has provided for us. So whatever saved by baptism means here, it doesn't mean everything else you said about the gospel, that you just went to five points to clarify for us. Somehow it's not applicable if we only get somebody into this religious rite. Well, all right, I'm done haranguing, so let's pray. Father, thank you for a time together in this day chance to be together, to sing, to pray, to worship, to fellowship. Thank you for your word. Work within us and guide us for ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.